Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome. We are back with another episode of Life List. This is George Armistead, and I am here with Alvaro Jaramillo. Alvaro, what's going on? Hey, how's it going, George? Uh, doing well in the West Coast. Um, probably dark where you are at this point, but it's still <laughs> light here. Yeah, lucky you. Yeah, it's 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 getting light a little later, uh, later and later all the time. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's darker, dark out here. I'm looking forward to uh, it's getting to that point in winter where we're starting to look ahead to spring a bit. Uh, I love winter, but you know, longer days are nice too. We we got like the daffodils are out here, so oh my god, it's like spring. Alan's yeah. hummingbirds have returned (laughs) (laughs) this morning i was talking to Kristen, and i was like um i was like how cold is it out and she's like it's 36 and i was like oh not bad today (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's funny it's been like i was at yesterday was really cold where i was in the morning you know and it was like frost and all that and then middle of the day it was like super warm it's like in one day, the contrasts are pretty high here right now. I'm not sure what's going on, but four seasons in a day there. Yeah, like cloudless skies. So at night, just all the heat just leaves, you know. So it gets in the little valley bottoms in some places. They're getting just super cold, and then sun comes out and you know heats everything up. So it's a unique situation, man. It's <laughs> going on right now. They're actually talking about. Um, some record-breaking heat the next few days for February in California. So it's oh, man. Not, not good news. I was going to say, that sounds a little scary. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, what have you been seeing in this uh, this beautiful California weather you've got out there? So, you know, you know what I saw yesterday that I hadn't seen for years and you think I'd see them all the time? California condor. Oh. Uh, on my drive – you know, I went to leave Pablo. He was playing hockey here in the Bay Area. So we, we spent a day, you know, weekend, and we drove him back to his school further south. And I thought, I'm going to make a day out of coming back home. I'm not just going to rush home. I'm going to go out, get photographs of stuff. And I saw more ferruginous hawks than I'd ever seen in a day. That was oh, great photographs of those and sort of ended bird. up the day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic bird. A booted eagle. Booted, booted oh. eagle. Yeah. Oh, I did see the booted eagle. I saw the, <laughs> the golden eagles and bald eagles and frugians. It was great, but ended up with, you know, various spots with California condors. And because I haven't seen them for years, actually, I mean, I ha- they're always there, but I've just, you know, you got to go out to see them. I hadn't, hadn't done that for a while. I don't think I'd ever seen an adult California condor until oh, yesterday. Oh, wow. I mean, how many how many individuals do you think you saw? Um, I guess maybe four at one time, but uh-huh. I saw them in various spots. Uh, so yeah, maybe saw eight or so. Wow. Yeah, I have only seen them once in my huh. life. Uh, it was a couple of years ago. I was out visiting you and Brian Sullivan and oh, yeah, right. and a couple other friends, and I still remember it was one of these like kind of typical thing that would only happen with birders, right? Where you, Sullivan and I are out there um, at one of his favorite sea watching spots, just seeing what goes by. And we had an awesome morning, like just tons of birds, you know, moving past out there. And 
a couple other guys come up and, and they're like, what are you seeing? You know, we start talking about what we're seeing and they're like, well, we're, we're heading South, you know, down to Fiverr state park and all that looking for condors. And Sully knew that I wanted to see those and, and, and that time was kind of running out on our, my visit there. And he's like, George, you should, you should hop in the car with these guys. And, and like, I was, and so like, I, I was like hesitant to ask. He was like, you mind taking my friend here? <laughs> I think he was trying to get rid of me maybe. But, uh, and so I, you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, okay. It, it was I've, like a, a van with no windows <laughs> and two guys with long beards. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll hop into this van. You, oh, you say Condor, I'm in. You had me at Condor. Yeah, it's true. It's it's like, I was thinking like in any other scenario, this would be just like a wickedly inappropriate, ridiculous idea. But here, your birders, you know, it's kind of like Greg Neese calls like the secret handshake, you know? And so I was just like, you know, hopped in the car with them. We went down there. We saw probably, I think we saw like, like 15 condors or something, you know, we had four or five in sight at once. We just kept seeing them. Beautiful day. I'm still in touch with those guys. Really, really, really great dudes. And, uh, but yeah, that it's, Man, see those things now in a way that, you know, as little kids, and we never thought we'd have a chance to see them probably right. ever again. You know, they were basically, you know, ex- practically extinct. Right? Yeah. And then they took them all out of the wild, and you're like, well, that's it. I'll never see a condor. You know, and yeah. Boom, it worked. Amazing, amazing story. But you, yeah. you know, what's weird is like the California condor and the Andean condor are n- not really that closely related. But I guess just based on the size um, and how they hold their tails and their wings and everything, like I was driving along yesterday. I'm like, look up in the distance, just sort of eyeballs like condor. And I just recognize the shape, you know, in the flight. And it's not like I recognize a California condor. I haven't seen that right. many. But yeah. it was just my Andean condor experience was Im- immediately transferable. For every birds. one California condor you've seen, how many Andean condors do you think you've seen? It could be like 60. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. I know. I've, I've had days when we've seen like 80 Andean condors in one day or maybe yeah. more than that, but I don't know if we've broken 100. Southern Andes ever. down there is pretty darn good place for them. I remember in Argentina being in places where some – There'd be like a Wanako carcass, and all of a sudden you just see them dropping, like bing, bing, bing. Yeah, you know, just dropping. Yeah. Get over there, be twenty or thirty of them huddled around a carcass. Pretty amazing. Right. No, I was contemplating yesterday too, as I was thinking, kind of like condor in general. You know, like um, so we ha- Andean condors are up up in the Andes, and you know these sort of, and we think of them as this mountain bird, partially because it's got the name Andean in it. But before there were people around, they were all over the lowlands too. Like, and now there's some Andean condors that you can see in the lowlands here and there in some places. Even in Santiago, they're they're dropping in over the city, going to the dump. And uh, I'm thinking, like, wow, you know, when when California condors regain their full kind of populations, at least even at a micro level. They'll just be over the valleys and stuff. They're not. Yeah. They're not necessarily always in the mountains. Well, Obviously, they need breeding structure, right? Like, aren't there like fossil records of those, like way east, right? Aren't there like? Yeah. Fo- they're like they're all over the continent, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So we've created this situation where they're out in the wilds and the mountains and the hilltops and stuff. But condors were like all over the place at one point, which is crazy to think, right? Crazy to think, you know. Yeah. I mean. 
but yeah, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I didn't have uh, a super close sighting, you know, where they swished over my head or something. I should have brought a bottle of ketchup, you know, put it on my <laughs> neck and then lie down <laughs> on the ground. They'd find me probably in half an hour and, Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you you can get pretty odoriferous as well. So you know, That's just right. you, you know, work out a little bit, give a little stank, throw a little uh, ketchup on there. Yeah, you might get uh, closer closer looking. Yeah, you anticipated. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know if I've told you that story, but my first really good look at an Andean condor. That's sort of what I did. I didn't have the no. I didn't have the ketchup bottle, but I I went up on a big flat rock and I just lied down, looking like I was dead, and the. <laughs> And this condor came like 10 feet away, like swished right over. No way. Looking at seeing if this thing was, you know, edible or not. (laughs) Dumb things you do. Were you you actually trying to look dead or were you just kind of relaxing? No, I was was trying to look. I was like, I was thinking if it comes close enough, I can then, you know, get get up real quickly and take a photo. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because I, you know, pre days of digital cameras. So, you know, it was like. You're using your Kodachrome 64 on like, right. A, yeah. Right. So the dead guy on the rock, it worked. I don't <laughs> think I got a, rock. I, I got a crappy photo, but I got a photo. That was all, right. that's all you wanted back in those days, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, this whole situation, this, you know, sort of Tom Johnson photographs, the birds in flight and perfect <laughs> feather, you know, that that's just, that wasn't even in the cards. For it's the not most, fair, really. It's not, it's not fair. fair yeah. You know? But yeah. in the old days, even the professional photographers couldn't do anything like that, you know, so. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, was, I remember going up to St. Paul Island that, you know, in 2002 for the summer. And I, I like spent all the money I had on film. And I like, I think I took <laughs> up like, you know, 50 rolls of film or something, you know. <laughs> now that's like, you know, it's like a fraction of a memory card. Right. You know? And you probably have to like put it in a huge like lead bag. So <laughs> exactly, like, Don't put it through the X-ray. Oh my god! Yeah, right. yeah, that's right. It's my whole life savings here. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. So condors—that's pretty awesome. Condor. Yeah, nothing Bridges wrong with that. Hawks, so I got to admit, they're pretty amazing because I did see them close. So that's a regal beautiful. bird, Beautio regalis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beauty of a Beautio. It sure is. Really is. I mean, that's one of the best raptors in the world, I think, and yeah. definitely one of the greatest raptors in North America. U- unique shape, oh, that the reddish feathered tarsi, that big gape on them, you know. Yeah, real like, r- serious eye, you know. Yeah, it looks like those wooden guys on like the Nutcracker, you know, that have the big jaw that comes down. <laughs> it's like you could <laughs> open their mouth into this huge, huge, uh, you know, opening to grab a. Walnut in one in one go. Yeah, I know. But this this is the <laughs> hawk I'm talking about grabbing the squirrel. But yeah, just a crazy jackrabbit thing. Yeah, and then I, they were flying flying over, and I was noticing that you know I think you think of them as these like kind of moderately pointed wing raptors, not quite like a orbidios, not quite like a Swainson's hawk, and they are, but their secondaries are bulging, and you're like, wow, that's like when they went. Right over, I was like, "That is a shape like no other beauty." I a really like distinctive shape, yeah. Really distinctive. That same was, trip when I was out there with you and Brian, I remember Brian and I went someplace. I don't even remember where, and we we saw a lot of beautios, and and I remember just being struck by the shape of those ferruginous hawks. They're mm-hmm. really distinctive shape. Yeah, it's cool. What have you been seeing? Yeah, well, 
Um, gosh, been doing some gulling, uh, is, is nice. will probably come as no surprise. Um, not a lot of, uh, great success with that. Some Iceland gulls around, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, but you know, these slady backs keep popping up around here, man. Boom, like, boom. Hey, yeah. I saw one even over here, but well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're allowed to get oh, them whatever. there because you, yeah, you like found the first ones there and now, now you find them like walking your dog or just, you know, taking a jog or whatever. It's like, that's right. That's you know, Alvaro found another slady back. Yeah, so, but <laughs> <laughs> Vega girl was riding on its back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, they're like, I think you saw South Carolina had their first, um, New York City just had their first. Maryland right. just had like their first real legit one. And, uh, you know, what do these things have in common? Philadelphia is kind of between all of them. Um, huh. Yeah. Well, actually, that's what they ha- don't have in common. <laughs> Philadelphia <laughs> doesn't have like the space. <laughs> yes. Yes. So it's a source of frustration to me. I've, I've spent some time, uh, you know, kind of picking through go flocks and uh with not not a lot to show right. for it one thing i did do though um was in was tom johnson and i saw that this swan had appeared up there at middle creek wildlife management area which is an incredible place if people haven't been they should definitely go and like early march is an amazing time to go there you can you know like see like a hundred thousand snow geese in a day and you know Where, thousands of creek? swans it's in sort of south, yeah, south central Pennsylvania. And uh, it is a real, it, it's a really, really great birding place. And this is, it's coming into its best time of year right now. But somebody up there, I'm trying to remember the name of the person, but they photographed this swan, uh, tundra swan, in amongst all the other tundra swans, which, you know, are the North American whistling swans. That's what, you know, they call them. Right. This one's got a huge yellow base to the bill. Huh. Um, and it's not like, not like trumpeter slash whooper swan big, but it's clearly a Buick swan. Huh. Um, wow. Yeah. Which is, I don't think like folks have now, a lot of people have gone and seen it and enjoyed it, which is neat. Um, and I didn't even, I knew it was like really rare, um, but I didn't realize just how rare it is for Eastern North America. Um, now, there's some Southern Ontario records, um, just like a handful. I think I think it might have even been one bird knocking around between a few spots for some of them. But it looks like a span of f- five, six years, there's some, quite a few sightings in Southern Ontario. And then there's two from North Carolina, and that's it. Hmm. Like zero other, you know, uh, such sightings. And it's just kind of interesting to me that, you know, taxonomically, it's a subspecies of tundra swan. So it doesn't get the attention that some other birds like i keep thinking about the mandarin duck right the mandarin yeah. duck like one shows up anyplace and people just lose their minds and obviously mandarin is an amazing looking bird but but like you know in terms of uh rarity in terms of scarceness you know this dwarfs almost anything else that you could see you know yeah um and it just got me thinking about some of the other especially waterfowl but other birds too that rare things show up outside or out of range and some of them just everybody goes all in and goes for them and other ones people cast doubt on their origin say that they're right. escapees um 
and or it's just because they're a subspecies they don't get the attention. Uh, and I think there's so many examples of that. Um, yeah, I mean, you just mentioned one earlier, Vega gull. Yeah, Vega gull is subspecies of of herring gull currently from Asia, and it's a rare, rare bird. And when you find one, especially out east, like you guys have had, that's a huge deal. But there will be a handful of people who are interested in that because, well, it's a gull. So some people are just not interested, but it's sort of, ah, well, you know, it's like a subspecies. It's a subspecies, yeah. You know? Yeah. Kind of poo-poo it. Yeah. And if it's ever separated, it'd be interesting to see how that shifts. Like if people will suddenly be like, you know, you've seen the Vega gull. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, like, and it's true. Like, we know that that's the case, right? Like, if it was, right. uh, if I shouldn't say if, I should say when it's elevated to, to Ooh, species level. Because I'm predicting I, the future. Yeah, I, I feel pretty confident about that one. I think, uh-huh. I think most folks do. Um, you know, like, then that, that will change. People will be like, oh my gosh, I got to go see that thing. Uh, you know, Russian gull, like, what the heck? You know, um, but it, it got me thinking about another one. Uh, and, and there's a whole bunch of these, you know, like um, Tule white-fronted goose. Sorry, in California Tule white-fronted goose. That one's nobody knows about that one other than West Coasters. It's this big white-fronted goose, and apparently genetically quite distinct. But nobody, you know, who's actually gone to look for them and seen them? Very few. They winter in the Central Valley. That's, yeah, I have to say I have heard of them only, but I didn't. I haven't actually thought about them a whole degree. So I am yeah. guilty of that one myself. Right there, you go. Yeah. Yeah. Another one, so. Oh, so many. But like one of the ones I, I, I thought of when I when I started, you know, this topic kind of got into my head and started worming its way around was the southern lapwing that showed up in Maryland. And um and that one has always bothered me because I, you know, you know well, uh, and I think folks are increasingly aware that these things have been gradually moving, expanding their ranges northwards. I think the first time I went to Panama, they just weren't really there, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. This would have been in like the late 90s or early 2000s or something. And like, then I, I think it was seven or eight years later, I went back and it was just like, they were easily found everywhere. Um, so, and there's a number of birds like that. So I've got a question. I'm just assuming that if a Southern lapwing ends up there, it's a wild bird. Are you telling me that the records committees did not accept that. They did not accept it. What? Yeah, and in okay, fact, so that's unusual to me. Yeah, that, well, to me, to me, it's like crazy. Who, who keeps? Who keeps a lap? They're, they're <laughs> annoying. I mean, like they're annoying. For, yeah, you know, they, the only people that keep them right are like farmers in like you know various parts of South America because they'll clip their wings and they make a hell of a racket. And then right. if somebody disturbs them on their way into the finca, the farm. Then they they yeah. they start they're basically great alarms, but otherwise yeah, but you know you they're not great to you have don't around. Take them with you. You like you leave them in the farm, right? Like they're yeah not moving those things around. No, uh, no. And if like, I remember that that was you know there's four different type subspecies. It was one of the northern ones, which is yeah. the one that you'd fi- expect to to be moving north, right? That's the Lampernotus or uh, it's Cayenensis. 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 I think. Right. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, exactly. That was, to me, that was like one where I think what happens is our expectations get in the way of the actually most likely scenario where, where people, this thing showed up, there's no real precedent for it in 
this part of the world. And people look at it and the thing looks, I mean, Southern Lapwings are pretty crazy looking, you know, like they really are. They're, they, they're ostentatious, crazy looking. They got the spur on the shoulder. They got the crest, you know, they make a ton of noise, pink face, you know, long legs, you know, they're, they're like a cartoon character. And I think like you show people a picture of that in Maryland on a little, you know, salt marsh island. And they think, oh yeah, that's somebody shoveled that out of a car or something, you know, swept it out of Mm -hmm. a truck. You know, if there's no way that's wild, but you and I know and think, and a bunch, you know, a lot of folks know that it's a different situation. Those things are just moving north. It's so funny, right? Because if, uh, gosh, if it was like uh, a heron, right? Like some unusual heron that that is found, you know, squawko heron, right? People would be like, oh my God, squawko heron, obviously wild. And you're like, Hold on a second. Why is the lapwing not obviously wild? Yeah. And why? But I don't think people would have a problem with the squawko heron because they're sort of like a. They show up in Britain. They've shown up in probably you know, you know this sort of African species that's moved north and been around. So there's in your head it it becomes like oh yeah that's like something that could show up. But yeah, lapwing is something that could show up if you're a. Central American, you'll be, you know, if you're in the Yucatan, you see a lap, southern lapwing, you'd be like, finally, they're showing up, right? Yeah. Because these things are, sh- are showing up. They're moving north. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got, another one I thought of was, I remember being out at Cape Hatteras, the, at Cape Point, not quite at Cape Point, but at, at, around the Cape Hatteras area and had a white-faced whistling duck um, in this area. And it was acting like a wild bird. Like obviously whistling ducks can be kept in captivity sometimes, but this thing was spooky. It was flying away. And I remember, you know, and this again would have been back in the probably early nineties and just, and I thought this is my default was, this has got to be a wild bird. You know, you're here, you are at this point of land way out in the middle of the ocean, like um, practically and, and is a logical place for a vagrant like that. Um, and just nobody, nobody gave it the time of day. Um, and, uh, there's, yeah. you know, there's a West Indian whistling duck record from right. the dismal swamp of Virginia, which to me is another one that deserves, uh, you know. Right. No, there, there's a, there's a picture, um, way back of this little flock. I, I want to say it's like four to six individuals of a ruddy shell duck from the oh, Northwest right. territories. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I remember it was sort of like, you know, un. I don't think it was sort of officially accepted as a wild record or whatever, you know, because the provenance is so unlikely. I'm just like, so somehow you think it's more likely that somebody released six yeah. ruddy shell ducks in the Arctic? That, that That's more <laughs> likely than the, the things actually got there? You know, it's sort of, yeah. to me, it's like, it, it's your perception of likelihood that, you know, sort of de- diminishes the the abilities of these birds. Exactly. That's what I I say. I find myself saying that people, you know, working on records committees and stuff, and it's a, it's a thankless job working on records committees. I, you know, and I'm on one myself right now and know lots of others that are, so I don't mean to diminish their efforts, but I do think that all of us are trapping, you know, subject to the trappings of our own mind. And sometimes you really have to go through some serious mental gymnastics to come up, to create an argument for how a bird got there rather than just, you know, the, the more it flew there. Yeah. It just, it, that's where it is. That's where it ended up. You yeah. Know? No, I, I've always uh, pondered that whole idea of like when you, you, you're in these, if you read all this stuff that the, the records committees, you know, 
put out or or what or you hear the discussions they talk about being conservative right that you 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 don't want to go crazy you don't want to be insane right and just you know willy-nilly accept anything but being conservative doesn't mean assuming that everything is not wild right right that cuz that's the assumption that seems to be like the where you begin and then you say well let's figure out if i can you know uh, if, in a sense, that's my default hypothesis. Let's see if I can break out of that hypothesis and say, okay, I'm comfortable with this being wild. I would say, like, assume they're wild. Yeah. Unless you have reason not to, right? Like, so Mandarin duck, right? Everybody keeps them. The things, you know, only show up in city parks. You right. Know, Pretty straightforward. Like yeah. Right. And there's mo- almost always males. Um, um, I think to me, those things all add up. But some of these other birds, they're just... Uh, you know, why not accept that they're wild unless there's like a real reason to say they're not, you know, like yeah. a big band on his leg or something or wear stage, you know? Yeah. 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 I remember seeing a couple ruddy shell ducks at Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge in the middle of winter once, and they were flying around, just like moving around the impoundments, you know, and, and I, you know, we're, we're far enough away. We're close enough, I should say, to, uh, urban populations that you wonder a little bit more about those ones than you would in the Arctic. But I still, to me, just, you know, gut, gut reaction, those appeared to be wild birds. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that they were, but that's what my gut tells me. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's some other ones that really can make it tough for us as well, but some of them really are more straightforward when we give than we give them credit for. And you know, some of these rare geese that show up sometimes, like, you know, I recall the original sort of some of those early Ontario barnacle geese that would show up in city, kind of not city parks, but sort of manicured lawns with other geese, and they, they became moderately tame. But then they'd leave and in, in the summer or what have you. And you think, well, uh, probably not a wild bird because it's just acting too tame. But then you go to Hawaii, right, where no – it's not like there's like a bazillion people just importing geese all over the place. There are <laughs> vagrant, you know, cackling geese, vagrant brant, vagrant geese of different types. And invariably they all go to parks. Yeah. <laughs> manicured lawns and become super tame. Right. And you're thinking, wow, okay, so maybe this is the default for these lost geese. They just, you know, they gra- gravitate to, you know, oh, yeah, there's a flock of Canada geese that's sitting around. So they, they get, get in with them. But um, then you go, oh wow! Like so, their their behavior is actually moldable, right? Yeah. So we can't we can't assume that they are acting that way because they're not wild. In fact, you know, we can prove that they become this way because they they get into these situations and yeah. they realize risk is really low. Nobody's hunting them or whatever, and they just like become tame. I think you and I on a on a on a Hawaii tour once had like five species of geese at that like Wailoa River, uh, yeah. you know, state park or whatever it was there, and, and and like they were all just like together with some like Egyptian geese and you know and yeah. and like you know domestic white domestic ducks and stuff and and you but you know that like people aren't importing minima. You know, cackling geese here. And, you and, know. and a flock of them were, you know, two of them are adults and the other ones are juvenile. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, like, you're like, okay, so this seems like they got here on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. 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 It's a, interesting, interesting, the, the, the birds that 
you know, we sort of automatically sort of go one way or the other with wildness. But like Stellar Sea Eagle, right? Nobody's going to be really sort of, I guess they originally were like, oh, could this be from a zoo? But well, the one in no. Texas, the one in Texas, the sighting in Texas raised some real eyebrows. Right. Um, but I, even that, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I'm like, well, maybe it just flew there. <laughs> right. You know, that's, that's kind of, kind of my default uh, for most so of these. We've been having a rare bird situation here. Um, yeah. Oriental turtle dove. Oh, yes. Oriental turtle yeah. dove. That's right. So that's causing, I mean, it's big enough news that a reporter called me today to talk about this thing. And I had no, I had nothing to do with the finding of this bird, but um, this biologist, uh, he, um, you know, he lives in Palo Alto and he had this weird bird coming into his backyard and he just sort of put it out as sort of like, hey, you know, as uh, anybody know what, if this uh, dove here is like something cool. Um, and sure enough, you know, it, um, it was something cool. And this, uh, you know, Andrew Bradshaw is the, the guy who found it. He, and I think within minutes I replied to him and I said, you know, Andrew, I think um, this is a, like, this is a big deal. I, th you've got yourself one of the or Oriental turtle dove. It's a migratory bird, you know, and it's, um, mega, blah, blah, blah. mega, mega rarity. Th third record in California, a few records in Alaska, British Columbia. This is so, you know, I said, Andrew, you know, you, you might be, uh, maybe getting bars for your windows or something. Cause you're going to have birders. <laughs> you have a lot of visitors time. coming a your way. A lot of visitors, you know? Yeah. So he said, he, he, he was like, Oh, you know, I can't really have people over. I got a little part place, you know, it's like a uh, little yard in the back. And, um, but local birders went to the neighborhood um, and found it roosting somewhere. So the birders have been able to see it outside of his place. And then people are now you know, flying in from the rest of the the country to see this super yeah, all over the place, all over the place. Yeah. yeah. So I had, I had kind of the, the little role in sort of helping identify this thing and, and prepare him for, so, uh, the onslaught, the onslaught. So it's, uh, and, and it originally it was sort of, there were a few people it's like, well, it's a dove, right? People keep doves. So it's pro probably a scapee. And I was like, mm -mm, you know, this is a highly migratory species, especially this form, this 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 um, you know subspecies, and that you can identify it from various aspects of its plumage. So, and these things have show up, you know, show up in Alaska and stuff. So it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it can take a little ride on a boat down for part of its journey. You know, they they could do that, but um, right. Odds are that's a strong flying bird, strong right there. Flying bird. Odds. So yeah. I think everybody's sort of switched to this is a wild bird. So, um, pretty quickly, I think people switch to that. And, um, and so that's, that's, a that's a whole, you know, in still there, people are seeing it. Um, it's causing a commotion. Um, I gotta say though, like one completely different topic. Um, I know the history of, you know, the Orient, you know, the the east from a from a European perspective, the Orient was to the east. You, you know, this is why you, we have the word to orient yourself. Is mm -hmm. actually churches used to be built to have the doors facing the rising sun. And that's the 
the east, the Orient, and Orient actually means rising. So, you know, that's why we use this word. And but if you're a person, right, and you're sort of called Oriental, it's mm. it's an other, right? It's this is a, yeah. a, a this is a this is not a comfortable word for me to think about, you know? Yeah. And I'm just sort of thinking, maybe like, I'm not one of these people who's like, let's change every single bird name. Um, yeah. And I, I do react though, to the concept of um, when people say like, Hey, you know, some words we use might make some people feel bad. Right. I, I'm sure that like stellar seagulls named after stellar. I don't know who's, I know who Stellar kind of was, George Stellar. Yeah. But I was say George. You know, his, good solid name. Except George. he spelled yeah. it wrong, right? He's yeah, it's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's yeah, Russian. No, no yeah. you know, I'm not sure that the word Stellar um, makes anybody feel wrong, except when you misspell it, of course. But that's <laughs> <laughs> but the word, you know, flesh, as in flesh-footed shearwater, I think has connotations that make you feel like, hmm, I thought right. we all had flesh. Oh, right. Whose flesh are we talking about here? Yeah. yeah. But you're, you're talking about pink. Hold on a second. That's not flesh. That's skin color you're talking about there, right? So that's one thing. And to me, Oriental is another one that I think we should take all these birds called Oriental something and just call them Asian or yeah. or, or something else. Um, kind of, I do find that's a word that if it makes me uncomfortable, I'm sure it makes other people uncomfortable. Stellar, yeah. I don't know. I mean, doesn't that doesn't? I know it's named for some dude, some, you know, and that that could be a problem, may not be. I don't know, but it's not visceral. This one yeah. is. So I feel kind of. I thought I'd point that out. You know, just that. Yeah. It's uh, it, but it's the name of the bird. What am I to do? Right. It's right now. Right. That's for the time being. That's what it's called. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a it's a rare bird, but. Yeah. Well, you know, Al, um, well, you do know, but do I? Uh, I like to, I like to, <laughs> I like to remind folks of two other critters named after Stellar that yes. um, people seldom discuss, actually. No. Um, and one is the sea cow. The sea cow. Stellar's sea cow. Long extinct. Well, not so long in terms, you know, sort of geological time, but, um, but what a couple of centuries now. Right. Um, in fact, I think they were discovered by you know, uh, or at least named, give, given a scientific name after the Vitus Bering expedition. I believe it was the one that got shipwrecked out there, and they actually ended up getting getting uh, getting off the island and and getting back to safety eventually. But. Uh, they were rumored to be very tasty. Um, not to delve, not to delve back too much into our some of our mammal tasting uh, discussions we've had in the recent past. Little sea cow with some sea lettuce and some sea cucumbers, and you got yourself a, <laughs> a fiesta. Sounds delicious. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think the, the it was described as t- having tasted quite. Tasty. I mean, I, I imagine if you're up in that part of the world and, you know, you, you don't have hand warmers for your gloves and just about any kind of protein starts to taste pretty good. But I think it didn't didn't help them that uh, that they were tasty and slow moving and really big. Right. They're a big sea cow as well. Yeah. And if, um, if anybody extinct know, now, 
pe- people should look this animal up. It was it's related to a, a manatee, but it was up in the art. Well, it was in the Bering Sea, so in cold water. It was a cold water, and it was actually, you know, manatees have like that tail like a diamond, and in Asia, there's a related animal called the dugong. I think it was that's yes, that, it's got more like a fish tail. It was actually related to that. It had like a fish tail rather than, uh, you know, sort of the the, that, the 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 dolphin style whale tail. Yeah, the the weird. Yeah, it's almost paddle. like a paddle. Yeah, yeah. So, and they were huge. And I don't understand how. I mean, that's an animal that I think only exists now as a skeleton. There's no. I don't think there's a photograph of it. Right. I don't think. Right. No. No photos. Nothing. Yeah. It's just. Skeletons, so we I, know they existed. Um, yeah, and, I think they were like maybe not seen in the in the wild a whole lot after that expedition. And the the other one was the Stellar's Shag or Spectacled Cormorant, uh, as it was seen and uh, as it was called. And that's another one that is uh, extinct as well. Huh. I got to admit, I'd forgotten about that one. You know. Yeah. Yeah, spectacled cormorant, stellar shag. I think there's even one other English name that's given at times, but uh, it was only found on it was at the Commander Islands, I think, up there. Yeah, the Commandorskis. <laughs> yeah, the Commandorskis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's you know basically a stone's throw from North America. These two beasts uh, in the same area, both gone just a couple hundred years ago. Right. Do you remember? Do you remember that whole? Uh, gosh, it was like maybe it was in the bird chat days when there was somebody who thought they'd seen this extinct cormorant. That I do remember that. that. Was yes, related to the um, it was that's the one pelagic cormorant. Is that it? Yeah, it was that. Yeah, and, they said they'd rediscovered the the stellar shag spectacled cormorant. Yeah, and uh, that's yeah, they, and and then it turned out like no. They had yes, it, it was sort of the ivory billed woodpecker before there was an ivory billed woodpecker, right? You know, right? yeah. And and then there was also some discussion later whether that creature was really different enough to be considered. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Or if it was like a hybrid, wasn't was there? Like yeah. yeah, I forget. There was some there speculation was as to its taxonomic uh, status. Yeah, but that, yeah, stellar boy, he was. You know, was was their ship called the Vega? Is that why the Vega goal is, or is there some other? I thought the bird is actually named for a ship from some kind of a expedition, and there weren't that many back in those days. So I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember, I've been trying to remember as we've been talking here. Yeah, um, maybe not because it, it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting story. The whole them getting shipwrecked and any case, uh, yeah, the turtle dove Stellar's. You know, sea eagle, um, all, all sorts of rare birds causing commotion. Um, yeah. In fact, um, gosh, I haven't listened to it yet, but the ABA podcast has a whole thing on the best birds. Yeah, Nate. Yeah. Nate Swick, the host there with Tom Johnson and Amy Davis, did a great rundown of 2021's uh, mind blowing rarities and rarity events. Oh, that's cool. I got to listen to that. So, yeah, I was um, in that interview with the reporter. He was sort of saying to me, like, so this bird and it's lost and it's has no community. 
it's and it finds these morning doves, you, you know, and it does its own thing here. And it, but it's kind of created this community of birders, you know, sort of in this. Um, and we started getting like philosophical about like, you know, people now are traveling and and things are sort of people are have this outlook and 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 sort of is there something cosmic going on, you know? But I think it was interesting to th- to think about the maybe what his real question was like, is this really special? And I said, well, you know, rare birds have happened all the time. There's like, you know, this, this stuff's been going on all the time, but there are some rare birds that end up being like just more than others. Right. And it tends to be because a lot of people saw it, right. A lot of people were involved. It was an event. In an event. You talked yeah. about the golden wing warbler in, in, in England, Stellar's um, sea eagle. Uh, I mentioned to him the Ross's gull in Half Moon Bay that I did not see, um, that it it's become sort of a thing, you know, a, and, a, and a big event. And I said, I think this one's going to go down as an event. It's like it's in Palo Alto. People are seeing it. It's been there for several days. It's really rare. Um, it's a to me, a good-looking dove. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not yeah, a fruit dove or something crazy, but it's a good-looking dove. And I, I was saying that it's like some, it's like a, you know, a good, like you know, there's a Super Bowl every year. Is what I told them. But there are some that are classics. I said this mm-hmm. could end up being a classic bird, um, yeah. at least for California. We'll see. Um, see how many people could, see. Could it. be the Super Bowl fifty-two of of birds, right? <laughs> It's when uh, the Eagles beat the Patriots forty-one to thirty-three. It's pretty, pretty great Super Bowl, I dare say. Mm. Let's ask, let's ask our listeners from from the Northeast <laughs> if they think so. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And the and one of the ones I always think of too is the uh, the, the other Ross's gull from um, Massachusetts, right. that was kind of a a really important bird actually in the history of American birding. Right. Um, like really it, it, all these people went to see that bird. Was it Newburyport in like 71 or something? I forget exactly yeah. what the date was and like Ludlow Griscom and all, all these, all these folks kind of came there to see it and, and, uh, and realized that, wow, there's actually a lot of other people around doing this kind of thing. Right. And, and it was a real kind of watershed moment in, the history of American birding. Um, and so the, yeah, these events, you never know kind of just what will spin out of them. Yeah. I I think there has to be, it's always a rare bird. So you really got the rarity, but even within rare birds, right. You know, you could have, gosh, you know, um, a, a rare flycatcher that doesn't look that cool. And you'd be like, small build Alanias may not quite, might not quite do it. Right. Yeah. There, that you just have the rarity effect. But if you have rarity, a good-looking bird, and a a situation where lots of people see it, like you know, we're talking hundred already, it's been hundreds. Maybe I'm not sure if it's broken a thousand this dove, but probably getting, getting there. You know, yeah. And then, um, yeah, I think those are the main elements that make sort of a classic. Yeah, the stellar seagull is like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, Like I joined the main rare bird alert Uh and, and (laughs) 
I think the day I joined, like 800 other people joined the main rare bird wow. alert. You know, like prior to that, I think there was like 170 or something like that. Wow. You know, just the eagle just, you know, just drew people like nothing else. I think this, I mean, I don't know how many people have gone to see the bat falcon, but that was also. A lot. That's yeah. also another one that sort of, it's a good looking rare bird. I mean, and that, that one's a little different to me because it's actually not from that far away. It just happened right. to cross the border, right? It's not. It's, it's like, a badass little bird too. Yeah, like, yeah. But it's not tropical like, merlin, basically. Yeah. It's like pretty awesome. Yeah. But the distance rarity sort of vagrant effect there is sort of not really that that much. It just happened to you know be that it got into across the, the border. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it helps too. There's a bunch of other good stuff down there right, right. now, like you know, social flycatcher, crimson colored grosbeak, and what other stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Some. Some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, we'd have to, we'd have to make a good, good list of all those super cool birds, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Those events. I mean, and and it is funny how, like, you know, we, we've talked about that golden wing warbler or the Acadian flycatcher. I remember in, in Britain. And I do think, uh, if you see the pictures of birders at those events there, it does look different than here, you know, there you get hundreds of people and, and the culture is different. The geography is different. Um, things, the birds there concentrate people into smaller areas and everybody can make it everywhere within a Mm -hmm. couple hours. Um, relatively speaking. Um, but like I remember seeing, I think it was a photo of the Acadian flycatcher a few years ago, and it was like this wall of people. Like everybody had scopes, yeah, and everybody. It was mostly dudes. It was mostly right. dudes. You know, mostly kind of like middle-aged dudes, younger dudes. Um, and and uh, not to say there's not a lot of female birders in Britain, but when it comes to the chasing, it seems like a lot of the time it is more. There's more men doing it there. Yeah, you know, reminding me too of like um, this note we got from one of our listeners from Holland, from from the Low Country, yeah, <laughs> from the Netherlands. Yeah, Timo Roque, um, and I'll say who had it, Timo. See, I know a little Dutch, right? A little. Wow, look Dutch. at you! Give me a ha, ha. I, I gotta say, I got a little frisson listening to you there. Very yeah, impressive. Yeah. I, yeah, I actually told him that you know my. My grandma's part Dutch, so that's why I'm tall. I, <laughs> I'm taller than the average Chilean. Star. Yeah, so I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But um, he he was wondering about yeah the demographics of, of birders, and he he was saying from his perspective in Holland, and Holland's one of the big birding countries in Europe, right? You know, oh so yeah. You have, I would say there's you know Sweden, England, or UK, Holland. And I think Spain actually has a lot of birders. But yeah, there are very few birders like in in Germany for the size of of the nation. So there, that's another yeah. question. Like, why are some countries more birder? Uh, you know, they it's in their kind of makeup. Yeah, it would be interesting, like a per capita, like you know, 
stu- you know, comparison of some countries. I do feel like I've met a lot of Dutch burgers right. over the years. A lot of Dutch yeah. burgers. Good, good. You know, I, I like Dutch people. They seem to be just uh, yeah. good. I'm not so sure about their language. The people, though, are great. <laughs> they all speak English, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is very, very handy because it seems like an impenetrable language to me. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. it's the one, maybe not quite like Finnish, but it's getting there, you know. <laughs> and you got to, you know. The, yeah, the yeah, it's a little flemmy, yeah. right? <laughs> so, but I was thinking about this, and he was wondering if there's mo- there's more women birding in the U.S. than Europe and Holland and so forth. And I think there are actually. I think over here, we're probably sixty percent women when you. When you add it all up, I would say over half. Yeah, over half. Um, yeah, in, in Europe, it's it's really skewed towards men, and and I, and sometimes sort of uh, not always the there's there's a younger kind of guy crowd too that 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 is is out there, you know. Um, and you, you hear my dogs? Yeah, it's like is that my dog or yeah, is that are those your dogs? Dogs going yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Those little dachshunds you got, man. Little terrors, yeah. terrors. But <laughs> um, and I wondered if you think there's a lot of stereotyping that you have to do to to sort of be, come out with answers here. But I wonder if that yeah. they're a little bit more into the listing in in Europe than North American birders. There's a lot more just let's go birding in North America, and that allows for more. Couples, younger people, sometimes women, you know, just get in it just from the fascination of na- natural history. Um, while the the real sort of British birding kind of cutthroat listing thing is a little crazy. It's all guys essentially. I mean, I want to say all guys, but um, right, overwhelmingly, though. overwhelmingly, yeah. yeah. And then you go like you guys had some really cool experiences in Uganda where they're focusing not on listing or anything. They're focusing on tourism and enjoyment. I mean, and I, you know, listen to your podcast you guys did last week and seemed like over there was a real mix and a lot of young people, right? Yes. It would be interesting actually to compare the U S and, and probably the UK too. Uh, in terms of the demography, especially with regard to age, right. uh, in terms of who is birding, who right. are the birders? Um, because I know you're seeing in in Chile, and and we've seen in Colombia, and we've and Molly and I were seeing in in Uganda, just this huge huge upswelling of birders. And you know, if you if you were doing like a Kind of, if you were plotting them on a graph, they'd be overwhelmingly, you know, probably folks under forty, under thirty, even right. the bulk of them, yeah, um, which is pretty exciting yeah. when you think about it. Yeah, it, it is, and and they, at least knowing the Chilean gang pretty closely, you know, given talks over there where you get you know a couple hundred people coming out and they, they tell you about their experience as a birder. A lot of them came out of being interested in in conservation and wildlife and mm-hmm. kind of animal planet sort of like, wow, look at all this stuff. And then they realize that they can do it. They can become a birder and then they're, they're in on it. Like then, then the conservation that they might be interested, suddenly it's has this real kind of um, total, you know, hands-on aspect to it, you know? So yeah. they, they, 
they're not thinking about eBird as a tool for listing necessarily. They're thinking of eBird as a tool for tracking information right. that is vital. Yeah. Well, yeah. here we're we're often you know complaining about eBird or people are. I've, you see it sometimes like, well, you know, it's counting my non in, my introduced birds, whatever. It's right. Like, this is this has to be changed. You know. Yeah. And it's sort of like oh, you know, it's, it's a of, default listing software right. for kind of for most Americans, which is not really it's. It's true purpose, right? Right. It's meant to track populations and yeah. trends in uh, in 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 populations and ranges and and yeah. The uh, I do think you're right. I think that like I think a lot of us have have tried this at home too, where you pick a little patch and maybe you go in eBird and you see the bar charts and you see there's these big gaps where basically nobody's going to these areas. And you think you know what? I'm going to try to fill up. You know, all right. the weeks, all all fifty two weeks there. Make sure there's some data, so that's a complete bar chart. And I think people in some of these countries where birding is really taking off now, I think they see that too. They th- they say, "Well, look at this. This hot spot is right where I live." And you know, like two months out of the year, it gets a few bir- it gets a few eBird lists. If I spend the rest of the year eBirding here. Like I'm actually I'm 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 fleshing out a data set and contributing to conservation at the same time. I think that's pretty yeah. inspiring if you live in that community. Yeah. No, and and you see it like from a temporal perspective as as we've been birding some of these places sort of in the early eBird years, you go to you go to else you know Guatemala, let's say, and, and you see what the checklists were and every single last name of every observer was a sort of a gringo English sounding or European sounding last name. And you're realizing, oh, it's it's really all the tourists coming in here, filling in the data, but now it's locals, right? It's, yeah. it's the locals now that are really contributing to to their own um, data set, and and you're not seeing as much of that situation. So, I mean, the, it, that's amazing, and it's younger people, and I think the pandemic has has made our birding community younger here too in North America. Yes. I don't know. You know um, about Timo, what's going on in Europe? But definitely here, it seems like we've we've sort of brought our average down. A lot of younger folks involved, all of a sudden. You know. Yeah, I think there's a number of things at work that are helping um, more and more people get into birds earlier and earlier. Um, and in addition to some of the things we've touched on, I I think with all the virtual experiences we have now. You know, all the screen time, I do think there is a need for people to want to connect with something real that's uh, and and, you know, have the presence of being outside um, and just like being away from all that, all the all the screen time and everything, all the all the phones and laptops and iPads and everything like you, you get outside and maybe pick up a pair of binoculars instead and and you like. That's a that's a different experience now relative to our day to day experience compared to what it was five years ago, much less twenty five years ago. Uh, I, I think, uh, and, and as you say, I think the pandemic really drove that home for a lot of folks. Uh, a lot of younger people made them realize how how much you can get out of time spent outside. Right. I do think one thing too that I mentioned, you know, the younger people like in the Chileans are sort of conservation minded and they become birders. I do find that here, you often will get people who are pick up birding as a older and become really into it and then they become conservationists. So I'm just, you know, I didn't want to 
come out like there was like a critique of of North Americans. We we all end up kind of uh, many of us end up in the same kind uh, kind of thought process where like gosh you know if I'm doing this every day and I don't care who else is going to care so I, I better care yeah you know? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> And I think you get to a point too where you realize how much birds have given you, right. how much they feed your soul and right. and in your day to day happiness. Um, you, you, I think you shared one of those articles recently about right. how time and nature and birding actually, you know, they give you more than financial stability can in right. s- in some some ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's like wanting to, you know, see more birds and and you know, give us money. We do birding tours for. <laughs> wow, uh, nice segue there. Oh yeah. boy, yeah, that's like <laughs> talk about just bad marketing. <laughs> um, and you know, with your your situation in Uganda, and I'm, you know, we're planning a trip um, later on in the season to Cuba. A lot of people we we. In, deal with in Cuba are are really sort of making their living from the birding groups going through there you know so there's Orlando that goes and shows you the uh you know the doves out there right the quail doves and you know there might be that the house that we we stay at at a certain place and right and or the place you eat lunch the for the bee hummingbird or something yeah the yeah. bee hummingbird dude yeah. you know it's like yeah. the bee hummingbird house and all of those people had sort of this steady um, income from natural history, and uh, it's been gone for a couple of years. And the whole country yeah. of Cuba is suffering. You know, the entire country, let alone you know the, the bird-related people. But right, I, it feels great to sort of um, kickstart our tours and then be able to see these people again who haven't seen them for years, see how they're doing, and all that. But begin to again be part of this flow of of resources to people who actually do care for the environment like yes. they do go out yeah. there and they're you know making sure that the trails are fine and that you know there's no forest fires and all this kind of stuff going on they're they're taking care of it um and uh it's just uh it feels bad because they're waiting for us to come and yes we yeah. aren't coming it's almost like you know like i feel like it's a punishment they don't deserve at all. Like, and, and I think, uh, it felt, it's been feeling sort of like, uh, uh it's going to be real release, not just to see the birds, but almost more, um, deep in a way to see these people and make sure that we're sort of continue this cycle again. Yeah. The partners, the agents, the colleagues, the restaurants, the, the guides, you know, the hotel staff, you, all these, these tours you do again and again, you get to know all these people. It's like you get to the point where you're almost like, I'm going home again right. to, to, to my home away from home to see it, to work with this team of people. And right. it does, you, you, you grow to, to miss them. I do feel like we're turning the corner, yeah. uh, which is pretty exciting. It's pretty actually. exciting. Man, we're hitting our time. Yeah, just about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alvaro, uh, any uh, any last words for the people? Anything uh, you got coming up? You want folks to know about? Well, um, we in the in sort of this uh, thought process of kickstarting things, we realized Thailand uh, just put on a, a new sort of process to get people to go and visit the country and are 
Thai guides are available. And Peter Burke said, let's just try it, see if we can do a trip in in March, late March. So like right around the corner. So if you're interested in Thailand, go to Alvaro's Adventures. And we only need like four people to make this trip a go. So it's Oh my God, really that's such a, yeah, kind of, it's a mecca for birds. You know, it's sort of, we don't tend to do this kind of thing. Usually you're planning trips way ahead, but we had this trip kind of planned before the pandemic and we just sort of letting it loose and see if it happens. And if not, the next year. But that's one thing we got kind of out there. So we'll That's such a great destination. And it's one that really, I haven't been there for quite some time now, but I know that it is another place that has really grown uh, birding tourism and that there's a tremendous photography, tremendous birds, all sorts of fancy pheasants and broadbills and all sorts of cool stuff. And, uh, and you know, the food is tremendous, tremendous, yeah. Every, you know, you don't have to go to Everywhere a Thai restaurant. Yeah. Well, it's like in a Thai restaurant I, the whole time. Like I went to a couple like fancy restaurants and then I went to, you know, I ate at like, you know, street carts and everywhere the food was delicious. It was so good. Yeah. I've only spent a few days there myself. So I'm kind of interested eventually to getting out there myself, but Peter will be doing that trip. And um, yeah, otherwise, you know, we've got our membership site, Birding Your Best Life for if you want to learn about ID and birds and distribution, that's where we're going to start storing all of our our stuff, our courses. Yeah. So. We got our live event tomorrow night. This will post probably after that, oh, but yeah. I suspect that will not be the the last uh, live event. I'm sure you've got some other ones cooking, so people yeah. should definitely keep an eye out yeah. for that. What do you got going on? I pelagics, man. Got some more pelagics. It looks like I got pelagics the next two, th- well, three, three out of the next four, maybe four out of the next four weekends. Of course, weather dependent. Need some help wow. from the weather gods. The one that the coming this weekend is sold out, and the weather's looking pretty good at the moment. Hopefully that that holds up. And uh, yeah, I got a couple more coming up. So I hope folks will, that might be interested will check the Hillstar Nature site and look for the uh, look for that. And also. Um, very excited about a Columbia tour I've got coming up in July, right. uh, which is which is uh, just about where we need it to go. Uh, I think we I think we've got it's almost uh, to the point where we're ready to rock, and it's another one where it's relaxed pace, right. good photo ops, nice lodging, um, and uh, and again I'll be seeing a bunch of friends in Columbia that I haven't seen in quite a while yeah. now, so it'll be really great to get back there. And enjoy uh, some good Colombian food and some great Colombian birds with friends. So looking forward to that. Hey, just like thinking about your pelagics, people don't know, and they're from, you know, they're a few hours driving distance. Where do you leave from? Where do you go from? Or are there multiple places you leave from? So multiple sites. So the one this weekend is is out of Ocean City, Maryland. Uh, sometimes we do them out of Lewis, Delaware. Mm-hmm. And then um, we have a couple different ports we're working out of in New Jersey as well. Um, so the one on the 19th of February is going out of Wildwood Crest, which is just north of Cape May a little ways. So South Jersey. And later in the year, hopefully have some going out of North Jersey as well, maybe for some more deep water situations. Uh, so uh, I'm sure we will be uh, – telling folks about that as the plants solidify there. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Hey, yeah. I want to hear about the dove keys. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. Ridiculously cute little things. You know? 
Yeah, I still need nice. to see that one, as you know, as the listeners yeah, man, know, get you. you're following this thing. Yeah, we got to get you here. We got to get you here. It's cold, though. Good. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks to our producer, Molly Brown. She's getting ready to head to the San Diego Birding Festival in the next few days. Keep an eye out for her there. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Al, have a good one. All right. Thanks. See you, George. See you, everybody.